0: Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that sets trends, starts movements and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Listen in so you can know and better understand what's happening here in California. Find out how you can help, be more involved, and get inspired to break your own ground. Today we're talking about California's aging dams, crumbling levees, and how we need to better prepare for our seesaw swings between big floods and long droughts. After the major storms last winter, we've officially moved out of a six-year drought to full capacity in our lakes and reservoirs. But as we saw from the damage at Oroville Dam and how nearly 200,000 people had to be evacuated from the area. An oversupply of water isn't always a good thing. Now that the snowmelt is starting to flow down the rivers, we're going to see how well California does in restoring its groundwater to the Central Valley and fixing its aging water infrastructure statewide. And as taxpayers, we'll also be learning how much it will cost to maintain our 1,400 dams and 13,000 miles of levees, and who's going to pay for it. We're down in the basement at Graziano's speakeasy in old Sacramento, which ironically sits at the level the city of Sacramento was originally built at before the Great Flood of 1862 put much of California underwater for up to six months. Join us and listen to our groundbreaking panel as we talk tonight about fixing our dams, managing flood control, and handling our water supply between the big rains and the long dry spells that California has always had, and will keep on having for the foreseeable future.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm with California Groundbreakers. We are a nonprofit organization based in Sacramento that highlights innovative people doing very innovative things here in the state of California and bringing them in front of a live audience and a podcast recording for them to tell you all what they're doing and how you should be concerned, involved, and affected as a California resident, a taxpayer, a citizen. So right now we're talking about fixing the dams and managing flood control, because as many of you know, this was a mega year for uh, water. And um, it came after what, four official, four to six years officially of drought. So, okay, five, thank you. So obviously this is something where it's gonna circle around. What's interesting about the place that we're having at here, uh, Graciano's in old Sacramento is, Many of you may not know this. I just found this out. We are at the ground level of where Sacramento used to be. And then there was the flood of 1862 that basically put most of northern and central California underwater for about 40 days. The city was pretty much flooded. I think they had to move the uh, capital government to San Francisco because it was flooded. And what they did was they raised the level of the entire city at that time seven to 10, maybe 15 feet. So this is where the city used to be, and now it's uh, at least 10 feet above us. And that is because we've been dealing with floods for a while. And I think we live uh, in what used to be, maybe still is an inland sea, uh, the Central Valley. And so that basically informs how we live, how we farm, and how we're going to be uh, tackling the issue of fixing our dams, levees, and water infrastructure going forward so i will tell you that i'm basically i started this organization because i'm i'm a citizen i'm a taxpayer and i don't work in the capital but i have a sense that issues like this are going to be affecting me in my wallet at the water faucet and i think there's a lot of people out there like me who are curious about how this is going to play out so we have a great group of panelists thank you very much for coming and what how we start is i had the panelists introduce themselves because they know They know themselves better than I do. And I ask each person three specific questions, obviously their name, the organization where they work, a little bit about what they do briefly, because we're going to go into that more detail, and then just a personal question to find out a little bit about you as a person. I always like to ask something related to the topic that we're covering. So for this one, I want to ask, in California, what's your favorite body of water, river, lake, ocean, whatever, and what you enjoy doing on or near that? body of water. So let's start uh, on my left.
2: Hi, good uh, evening, everyone. My name is Leslie Gallagher. I'm the executive officer of the Central Valley Flood Protection Board, which is the state agency that is tasked with managing all of the state plan of flood control levies in the Central Valley. So I think I'm here tonight to give you the bureaucrats point of view and the uh, I have to be on the ground working with this stuff point of view. We have lots of folks here that have um, a lot of experience with water policy and have some great ideas about where we're going and climate change, um, but we'll give you the perspective of what we're doing today and what we have to do today to just manage and keep up with, with our uh, levee system. So I have about 12 years' experience in water. I came from supply. I used to work down on the Colorado River, and I was the assistant general counsel for a water wholesaler down there. And we did fascinating things with seven different states, Mexico, there's a whole law of the river around the Colorado. And when I was there, I thought, well, the only thing more complicated than working down here um, would be working in the Delta, which is something I never want to do. And ironically, three years later, I ended up taking a position here with the state, and so here I am. Um, but my favorite body of water, as you can probably already tell, is the Salton Sea. Uh, I like it for many different reasons. It's an accidental lake um, that happened uh, between 1905 and 1907 when the Colorado River jumped its banks and they couldn't get it back in line for two years. That was uh, dump trucks rolling along trying to get it back into its normal course it filled up um, an historic dry lake bed and for 110 years we've been dealing with the Salton Sea and it doesn't have an outlet it's fed now only really by agricultural tailwater so there's all kinds of interesting environmental and um, you know, social economic. It's Imperial Valley, so it's very big agriculture area. So uh, that's my favorite body of water. And I haven't been able to eat tilapia since I took a visit there. <laughs> so <laughs> we can go into that more later too.
3: Hi, uh, my name is James Gallagher, and I'm an Assembly member uh, serving in the uh, State Assembly here in California, in the Capitol. Uh, I represent uh, the third assembly district, which covers the northern Sacramento Valley. My district starts about, oh, 20 minutes north of Sacramento uh, and goes all the way up to Red Bluff, Tama County, uh, almost to Cottonwood, if you know where that is. Um, the Sacramento Valley is really where we started battling the Inland Sea, uh, if you've read that book and if you haven't, I recommend that you do. Um, Uh, my background I was uh, an attorney that practiced mostly agricultural law Uh, my family is also in agriculture we farm rice and walnuts in the Sacramento Valley Uh, and I was on the Sutter County Board of Supervisors for six years in in that capacity I served on two flood control boards uh, the Sutter Butte flood control agency uh, which is responsible for improving levees along the west uh, Levee of the Feather River uh, and also on the Sacramento area flood control agency which oversaw for those of you that maybe live in Natomas uh, the project that has been uh, done along the Sacramento River and also along the American River uh, protecting those areas so that's sort of my background before I came into the Assembly um, my favorite body of the water I, I would say I have two one is Lake Almanor uh, which is actually a PG&E reservoir that was built about the turn of the, the century, uh, but have a lot of good memories uh, you know, going up to Lake Almanor, still do. Um, and then also the West Branch of the Feather River, which is a great uh, trout fishing uh, river. Uh, and I spent a lot of time fishing along that river uh, in my younger days and not enough time in my adult days. So that's, that's another favorite as well. Thank you.
1: And I should just mention that Leslie and James share the last, same last name, but are not related. Is that right? Not that they know. They call each other cousins. Okay.
4: Well, howdy. My name's Mike Mirzwa and I'm a civil engineer working with the California Department of Water Resources. I've been there for about 19 years. I am our lead flood management planner for the Department of Water Resources. What that means is basically I'm the pathfinder. My job is to go through and identify the problems of the future and to outline a course of actions that we would recommend we could take together to go through and address those problems so that we actually have good outcomes in the future. Uh, a little bit about my background just for a sec or two. I am, as a civil engineer, a specialist in hydrology. I've done a climate modeling, estuary modeling. Uh, Eventually, I was working with the department in the National Weather Service to produce the river forecasts for California and Nevada. And then after that, I got pulled into the communications associated with Propositions 1E and 84, which was our improvement effort for protecting Californians from future floods. And um, now I found myself in my present position. Favorite body of water. I'm going to cheat here, I'm going to give you, it's really one, but I'm going to say it's maybe two and a half or two it's the susun bay susun marsh and there's three characteristics that i really like about it one it kind of still is the home of the ghost fleet but at one point in time it was just fantastic when you were coming by and seeing all of those surplus uh, navy merchant marine vessels sitting out there Uh, it's just for a child a great place for your imagination to to really spark off second thing the the marsh itself is incredible habitat for our waterfowl and that's a, a statewide treasure that I would cherish and I think many people do. And then the third thing is, as a resident here in the Sacramento Valley, I recognize that is the first room on our air conditioner. And for people who aren't familiar with what happens in the summer here in the Central Valley, it gets really hot during the day, but then during the evening, we get this fantastic Delta breeze that passes right through the Carquinez Strait, stops off the Sussoon Marsh, and eventually marches up and comes to my home in Davis and Sacramento.
5: Uh, My name is Jay Lund. I'm a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the nearby University of California, Davis. Um, I've come originally from the East Coast and by way of Seattle where I did my education, and then I experienced abrupt climate change when I moved to California because you have a very different climate here than most of the rest of the country. Um, I specialize in water management um, and in modeling water systems from a management perspective. So I look at We have big models of the whole state of California for water supply, um, and we have some sizable models of the Sacramento Valley for flood control that we play with and use to educate students. Um, We've had quite a lot of fun with these models over time. We've done a lot of work with public policy for the Delta and and quite a few other parts of uh, California, which has a, a wonderful variety of water problems to study. Uh, my favorite body of water i uh, 'm um, a lifelong sailor, so any body of water that 's deep enough to put a centerboard down I, I really enjoy um, it 's hard to pick among all of them what 's the best but i 'd say the Pacific Ocean
6: <laughs> jay you got the biggest one my name is brent hasty i 'm the chairman of the board of the Yuba County Water Agency and I started in the water world basically backing up a dump truck in 1986 and putting sandbags on a levee and uh, canoed through my house in 1997. My least favorite body of water at that point was Plumas Lake. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've been in the water world since 86. I have a, you know, I, I'm not an engineer, I don't know numbers. I have a BS in management, which is the perfect thing for a politician. So. Uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, my favorite body of water has to be New Bullard's Bar Reservoir. Uh, the Yuba County Water Agency owns New Bullard's Bar Reservoir. I raised my kids up there on our houseboat and just absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, I have to admit that my, probably the, one I, the body of water I use the most is we have a 37-acre lake on the ranch behind the house that my wife and I walk around daily. So it's the one where I see the ducks and the marsh. And, the, and so it's, it's absolutely where I spend most of my water time, throwing balls to my lab.
1: Thank you again all for being here. You're great. I know we're going to learn a lot from you, and I know we'll, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface for 90 minutes max, but we're going to start. And I have to say I did start by um, reading the Sacramento Bee because they did a whole bunch of stories on, uh, particularly the Oroville Dam and the flooding. So I'm going to start by asking each panelist um, a question going down the row, um, kind of like a lesson learned from Flood 2017 and what you experienced in going forward, what uh, what your organization is planning to do, can do. Um, And I know there's a lot, so we'll go into more detail. But I wanted to start with with Mike, um, because the B obviously has written a lot about the Department of Water Resources. I'll just refer to it as DWR right now. And one thing that was interesting, I think the latest thing I read was uh, you got two lines of uh, credit for specifically the Oroville Dam and specifically for the state water project. So I just wanted to see, in that lessons learned question I wanna ask, what's the status report on the dam and going forward, what is the DWR planning to do, short term, medium term?
4: Thank you, Vanessa. Um, There's really two different sets of activities that are gonna be happening with the recovery down the Feather River and the Oroville complex. First, they're going to be the activities centered around Orville itself. Second, we're going to actually also be worrying about in working with the local agencies to rehabilitate the levees on the Feather River. And that sits with our local assistance wing, which is separate from what you're seeing on the state water project budget. That hasn't really been discussed as much in the paper out there, but I wanted to first put that out there because that's a passion of mine. That's what I've been working on for the past several years. going now upstream to the the dam itself and the complex there, there are a couple activities that are happening. First is, uh, we have gone and uh, awarded the contracts for the rehabilitation of both spillways, the emergency spillway as well as the main spillway where we had the the damage on February 7th on the lower portion of the chute. The goal of these repair efforts is to literally get them ready to actually handle Uh, Spills overflows if we have them happening at the beginning of the next water year, which would be October November of 2017 we've been officially saying November 1st is sort of our target on all these activities The first steps of that process is going through uh, Getting the construction roads repaired uh, And then going and getting the batch plants these the 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 places where we're actually going to be able to prepare the concrete to actually go through and repair the spillways and with the new designs that we've come up with, we're addressing what's happening on that uh, hillside on the emergency spillway, and the technique they're using is what they call roller compacted concrete, so it's basically uh, stressed before water will come through there, so it should be able to handle the impact of an overflow, which was one of the things that we obviously saw as a, a failure within the February event.
1: And I should mention, this is for the audience here in the Gracianos, Mike brought a uh, visual of the Central Valley and the various bodies of water dams, I guess levee systems. So for anyone who needs some visual reference, it is there um, for you to look at. So feel free to take a look. So for levees in the Central Valley, or San Joaquin Valley, Sacramento Valley, Leslie organization does a lot with that. So I wanted to see, you know, status report, I guess, flood 2017, were there any lessons that you learned, like, going forward, we can't do this, we should be doing that, and what are you focusing on right now?
2: Thank you, Vanessa, and I think that's an excellent question that comes out of aging infrastructure generally. You saw what can happen with aging infrastructure at Oroville and we are living with a system that was largely built uh, 100 years ago to 50 years ago, uh, older than almost everybody in this room and built for really a different purpose. It's one of the fascinating points and you'll see it in the book that we referenced and anyone who really does wanna know about the political and physical history of the building of the levees. I do recommend this book, Battling the Inland Sea, by Robert Kelly. It's something we give to all of our board members when they're appointed. Um, But those levees were not built to protect urban areas. They weren't built to protect large populations. They were built for a completely different purpose, and they didn't care in the early 20th century, the sort of robber baron mentality of we're going to control it and reclaim it and manage it and we're not going to consider the environment, we're not going to consider anything else. And we have very different sensibilities 100 years later. And so we are still managing that same system from 100 years ago to today's standards and for at least six other purposes than what it was originally uh, created for. So you can imagine that that gives us a myriad of challenges. And one of the best investments that we have made as a state is in the last 10 years, we've invested about $4 billion into these levies. That's billion with a B um, through the propositions that the state of California citizens were prescient enough to know and understand that that was going to be necessary. And where we have invested that money, what we saw in this water year was those levies performed very well. We haven't been able to do that with the entire system. The San Joaquin is largely still very vulnerable. It was an underbuilt system to begin with and with climate change, there um, we're turning our attention there. And we have a comprehensive flood plan. Um, the Department of Water Resources, I give them a lot of credit for coming up with this plan um, and certainly the legislature for making us do that. Uh, our first plan was in 2012, and we are right now in the middle of doing the first five-year update. It has to be updated in five-year increments. So we are looking again more closely at the plan that was adopted then, what the successes have been, and where we're going in the future with our investments. But we, um, I think our biggest lesson learned is that we have to invest continually in the system. It's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. It needs continuous maintenance, and um, our plan has pointed that out really more than anything. So what we have largely to be grateful for is that there were very smart investments made in urban areas that protected people, property, lives. We, We had a very Big water year, and we didn't have any lives lost. And that I consider to be, uh, you know, a very big victory. So uh, we still have a lot more to do. And as our plan will show, um, we need 17 to 21 billion dollars more if we're going to really. Get a safe system, um, risk management with residual risk management. So um, that's obviously mes- messaging to our friends in the legislature to open the purse strings and prioritize this among the many priorities that we have in California and recognizing that we have many of those. But um, so I think those were the major lessons. We, just to put a little more perspective, we do have a state federal system. So the The system that the state manages is also part of the federal system. That does not include all of the levees. There are many levees, particularly in the Delta, for instance, that are private levees. Those are not part of the state plan of flood control and not something that we manage. But we do manage a state federal system, and so there's federal regulations, requirements. There's also federal contribution in dollars that we're consistently trying to um, make sure that we have to manage our system. But it is um, challenging. It's multi-level, state, local, federal. And um, you know we, we're making great strides with the great planning that Mike and his team have been doing. And we're really looking toward the future, as I hope you'll hear from Jay and others. Um, how do we incorporate climate change? Because now that's another layer um, that, that is new that we haven't had to deal with over the last 100 years. So um, yeah, lots of challenges. But it's an exciting time to be
1: here. I think I read that there's 13,000 miles of levee within the state. Is that sound about right? People are nodding. And how much of that is under state or federal control, like public, not private? Is it a majority? Sure. No,
2: that's a great question. So the state plan of flood control itself consists of about 1,600 miles of levees. So, most of your major levees that protect most of the major urban areas in and around the Sacramento Valley or State Plan of Flood Control, but it's, it's actually a small portion of the total amount of levies. Okay, so now I'm going to throw it over to the legislative representative here, James.
1: Um, so, I know you represent, your district has Oroville Dam in it, that's right, and then you are on the Budget Committee, so you've been having hearings recently on what's going on with the Oroville Dam um,
3: water parks and wildlife water parks correct? and wildlife
1: yeah. okay so i wanted to know you know again with this lessons learned theme what what does the legislator want to do is thinking of doing of course it comes down to also funding but um, what's in the works right now and what are you in your district and also as a member of the legislature looking at right now for a short medium maybe a, even a long term goal for infrastructure repair
3: so, well, I came into the legislature almost three years ago now. I'm in my second term uh, and, and really started off the water bond, Proposition 1, uh, which you may have probably have heard about, had just passed. And, you know, I think a lot of the focus, at least initially, has been on what do we need to do to improve our overall water infrastructure for both drought and flood. Uh, and I think you have to think about those things and we have to stop thinking about those things in terms of silos because they're not they're connected and the one thing that's not really new at all about california is that we have periods of drought and then like really big flood seasons you know like like monstrous uh flood seasons huge amounts of water coming down the watersheds that's not really a new thing Like you brought up at the very beginning, 1862, the super flood, where the description of that was that from one mountain range to the other was water, okay? So from the Sierras over to the coastal range, water. So we've always dealt with the threat of, you know, monumental flood seasons coming down the watersheds and then followed by periods of drought. And they seem to cycle about every 10 years. That's kind of what we see, you know? eight you know you can look back 86 then 97. 2006 we had a really high water year i was actually back in new orleans on doing katrina relief at the time and i'm calling my wife who was pregnant with our first child and saying you know we're worried about how high the water is against the levees you know and then now 2017 right so it's about every 10 years that we predictably kind of see you know high water uh and flood seasons what is what is new is climate change and what climate change does is exacerbate that it means the water come tends to come faster earlier earlier in the year and 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 in some cases much more uh much more of it right so 86 in the feather river water system we saw um uh, cfs of water coming into oroville dam In 97, we saw 320,000 CFS. That's the most that we've ever, in record history, seen come into the Oroville Dam. 2017, keep in mind, the peak was 190,000. We really dodged a bullet this time around. Um, 190,000 compared to 320 that came in 97 on the peak. Um, So what's what's new is that these things tend to be even more uh, Come faster and maybe in more uh, larger amounts, right? So we got to be prepared for that. And 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 the other thing is, we need to manage flood flows in a way that ensures that we have water during our drought period. So when when we talk about storage and needing to build more storage, we do need more storage. We need to be able to capture this flood water that's coming earlier in time, earlier in the year, and is otherwise going to go out the system unused. We need to be able to capture it. Either through above ground storage, Sites Reservoir is one of those projects out there on the inclusive county where you can take that water out of the Sacramento River flood flows uh, and capture that water 1.6 million acre feet uh, to be used during our drought periods and make sure that we have sufficient water supplies. The other way is getting flood waters out of the Delta during flood periods and getting into groundwater basins and groundwater storage basins where we can hold that water and, and replenish aquifers so that we can use it. So that's something that's been talked about a lot in the legislature. Other things we're talking about is we gotta improve our conservation. We gotta maximize our water, whether we're in urban or in an agriculture. And there's been a lot of progress in that, in fact. Um, a lot of, pe- lot of communities have invested in recycled water. Um, you know, A lot of communities are you know, having innovative ways of water budgeting to ensure that they're maximizing their water use. In agriculture, many uh, uh, agriculturalists have adopted like microjet systems, for example, that use water much more sparingly, but efficiently to grow their crops. We've made, we've made progress there, but we need to do more. Desalinization. You know, a lot of people talk about desalinization. They say, man, the energy is too great. I know right now of one, of a, one young man out of Chico he actually went to the naval academy who's who's already developing technology on desal that uses very little energy um, now this hasn't been you know it hasn't been produced for mass production yet but there are innovative ideas in the desal world that would use a lot less energy and be able to us to use salt water and turn it into usable water so th- that's another thing that we're focusing on in the legislature um, we've also because of orville you know, I think it's been a striking example now. Myself and others have been saying it for for a long time that we need to invest in our infrastructure, repair and upgrades. I think the biggest thing I learned from, from Oroville is that what we don't have is a process in place. We don't have an official process in place to look at our existing dams, for example, and say, yeah, that was built in 1968. Let's talk about Oroville for a second. That spillway was built with a, a nominal thickness of 12 inches to 15 inches, depending on who you talk to. We just built uh, Folsom Dams, Auxiliary Spillway. It's 42 inches thick. So at some point in the last 50 years, we probably should have asked the question of, should we do something to increase that thickness, make that more solid and solidify? We never did do that. Putting those processes and organizations in place to ensure that we do that for our existing infrastructure is something that we have to do.
1: And I, I just wanted to ask quickly, because when I was reading up on what's going through, if any, bills or, you know, things that we would be voting on for 2018, one thing that came up was Senate Bill 5 that uh, Kevin DeLeon has – and I get that there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. There's $500 million for flood control. That's probably not going to cover everything. But is that the main thing that everyone is focusing on, or how much – Activity in terms of uh, drafting things is happening now, or is it still kind of in the discussion phase, let's see, and, and research?
3: Well, I, I think the daily Leon bill is, is potentially uh, a vehicle for maybe doing some additional bond money um, to do things for flood control. To like, We've already had the 1E money, like as Leslie just talked about, that's, that was $4 billion that we have invested into our system. So these are things that we've already done. The other really big, I mean, prop one is still really the biggest thing. I mean, we there's potentially $2.7 billion there for new water storage in this in this state. The Water Commission is in its process right now of deciding how to allocate those funds into what projects. Um, there's money in there for recycled water, for conservation efforts, for, for all of those things I talked about. And so really, I think the main focus from a policy perspective is making sure that we we utilize that Prop 1 money to in, enhance and improve our overall water infrastructure. SB5 could be a vehicle for additional bond money for flood control purposes, although what, what that kind of is right now is sort of, Eduardo Garcia in, in our house and the assembly has a, a bond too that's more focused on parks. Uh, uh, Kevin DeLeon's has a lot of parks money in it too, but it has the flood control component We'll see what comes out of that. You know, there's that's really, I would say that's still in its really early stages right
1: now. So Prop 1 is still the main driver in terms of funding. Okay. So uh, we have Brent here because I wanted to get someone to talk. I think it's interesting. You uh, interact frequently with public water agencies and the ag industry, which is a big deal. And I was curious, you know, uh, what they're focused on right now. There's so much water that could be a great thing but there might not be a, a thing so what are you hearing in terms of what the agriculture industry or they have can they let out their breath our public water agencies you know flush with water or what's what's gonna be happening now with both those
6: right uh, Vanessa I think that it's the reality is is our biggest concern which is probably the biggest concern small local water districts have or uh, farmers is that an emergency will cause overreaction from the state and will cause more regulation that we don't wanna to have to deal with. And so I guess that's the, that overall is the biggest concern. I think, I think that we have to say that, I mean, we understand that climate variability, you know, it's gotta be accounted for. We've gotta make investments. And I'll, a quick history of the Yuba County Water Agency, and just so, you, I'm also the Vice President of the Association of California Water Agencies, so I get to speak to a lot of water districts. But I think the people of Yuba County, we're a small podunk county just north of you. You know, we got about 65 to 69,000 now. Back in the 50s, we had about 35,000. After the 55 flood, the people of Yuba County bonded, passed a bond within their own county that was two and a half times the entire assessed value of our county and built new Buller's Bar Reservoir, a million acre feet of storage, which is about the size of Folsom Reservoir, uh, with a lot more power. And we did that because of the floods of 1950 and 1955. The next crisis, big crisis, we had a flood in 86, which kind of got us started looking at levies. And I t- talked about the flood of 97 when I canoed through my house. We lost 1,000 homes. Um, I think that, you know, again, the citizens of Yuba County bonded themselves, went after every drop of state money, and so we spent $450 million, and again, this is a little bitty county, on our levies. So 2017 rolls around, and I gotta say that we were sitting there going, man, this is a great flood year. The levee systems are holding up really well. Wow, and, and, and to be upfront, the water was falling at about the perfect rate. While we were getting lots of it, as James mentioned, there were no 320,000 CSF coming into Oroville. There was no problem. We were actually sitting pretty high and happy and thinking, man, we got this system in Yuba County dialed down, and then our Facebook page showed, oh, the spillway at Oroville is falling apart. And you know it became a crisis. Had that not happened, this would have been the, the highest water year in the history of California that is recorded, and with no almost no floods. I mean, very few floods in northern california I, I don't know of any major levee breaks. It was an incredible year, and kind of goes back to the work that the flood agencies and the state and the investment of the people of California have made. I think what it proves is that and and we in the water world believe it, is we're about to have to have a lot more investments. The reality is there has to be some more storage. One of the huge concerns now is we have tremendous amounts of water leaving and going through the delta and going out to the ocean. And a lot of that water could be put to work for our next drought, because we know we're gonna have one. And if we look at the last five years of drought, one of the most worst we've ever had, there was huge infrastructure built in the LA area, Southern California, I mean, the people who got just slammed in this drought were San Joaquin farmers. And about what's to happen, if we don't figure out a way to put some more storage in, and you know, protecting the levees is absolutely vital, but if we don't get some more storage, we have what's called sigma, which is groundwater management. And we have to be able to find ways to move water to where we can get it into the ground. And so that's why I think it's a statewide issue. Storage is incredibly important some kind of conveyance system around the Delta so that it can be moved. I mean, as you all know, most of the water in California comes about right through where you're sitting and most of the people in California don't live here. And I'll be honest, from my standpoint, in a rural county of Northern California, I always tell people, you know, give them the water. I'd rather they have my water than I have their people. So <laughs> I think that, you know, it's, we ought to work together as a state from, from from little districts in the north to the big districts in the south, you know we are one state, and we have to work this together. But it is about protecting people up here and helping us to help them by moving water to where it needs to be.
1: All right. So, Jay, my last individual question is for you. Um, I found you because I was just looking. I saw the California Water Blog that your Center for Watershed Sciences worked on, and you had a great blog post about you know droughts and floods are are uh, Over, but just beginning. And it was kind of like a lessons learned from your past decade of looking at weather patterns and water patterns. So I was just curious, you know, for now with flood 2017, what's significant or what did you, you know, what are you telling people about what this signifies going forward?
5: Well, I I think the, um, to begin with, uh, the, Previous speakers have talked about the history of floods in California, the history of droughts, and, and I, I agree, Battling the Inland Sea is one of the finest books you'll find on water management anywhere in the world, actually, and certainly for California. California has the academically enviable position, but the practically unenviable position, of having more floods and droughts per average year than any other part of the country, statistically. I mean, this is, you can see this in the numbers. So it's a great place to study water problems, droughts and floods. And, and by and large, uh, we've done a very good job of managing them. We, we've, we've had a, one of the most prosperous economies, one of the largest populations. And in terms of agriculture, one of the most, probably the most productive agricultural region in the world in this climate. It's kind of a remarkable achievement for a civilization. That doesn't mean we don't have water problems. It means we always will have water problems. We will always will have flood problems. We always will have drought problems. We will always be complaining that someone else is wasting water, and we're not. This, this, is, this is the normal thing you will see in every drought, in, in every flood. So we have a lot of successes. The other thing you see about f- both the floods and the droughts, and, and we're really, you know, I think, kind of lucky in this term, I think politically kind of lucky, to have seen one of the deepest droughts of record and the wettest year of record for this part of the state so close together. I, I think there's really no excuse for the legislature and the, and the higher levels of government not understanding and not taking advantage of this knowledge, this evident knowledge we have now that there's this great variability and we have to manage for both extremes. We've seen weaknesses on the drought side in terms of groundwater. Some very far thinking, I think, actions were taking, taken. Uh, on, on groundwater management, sigma, it's going to cause a lot of people to do things differently, but it's going to allow us to keep a lot more profitable agriculture going through droughts than we would otherwise. So nobody should. Uh, on the whole, the state really needs to do this, uh, and I think it's untimely. On the f- on the flood side, um, certainly the Oroville experience and the spillways, I think, marred an almost otherwise nearly perfect you know, incredibly wet year. So it's highlighted problems with, with, uh, with spillways and, and, and large, large infrastructure, large flood infrastructure, and the need to invest and inspect and, and do maybe probably a better job in those areas. In terms of levees, we got through really pretty well. We lost a few levees. They tended to be in low value areas. Um, they'll be re- readily repaired where necessary. The other big flood that occurred was in San Jose that was the biggest flood actual flood damage from an actual flood probably on the order of 70 or 100,000 70 or 100 million dollars if you look at the evacuation of Oroville, okay 200,000 roughly 200,000 people evacuated for a couple of days if it were you how much would you have how much would you have paid not to have been evacuated you know so you were easily seeing 100 200 million dollars worth of damage just from an evacuation which fortunately we didn't actually need in retrospect, but I I think they made the right decision. So we have some things we'll need to pay attention to um, on floods and on droughts. Um, The other thing you see when you look at the history of floods and droughts in California is every flood and every drought is different. You never have the same drought twice. You never have the same flood twice. It's a different economy that it hits. It's a different political system that it hits, as, as Kelly's book, points out just beautifully. Um, and so we are always having to adjust, and this is the history of wa- California water management, we're always having to adjust our water management, our water infrastructure, our water institutions to the changing economy, the changing population, the changing politics, and the changing climate. And we're going to have to do that into the future. The, the key to doing that has always been being organized. It, our ability to run this system has... has pivoted around our ability to organize local districts, the Wright Act in the 1800s, and then the State Water Project of the Federal Agency, Hammond Hall's work, and and federal involvement. The two big areas we're really, I think, suffering with the most is ecosystems and floods. For floods, we have an organization to, to manage these things, but we have no steady funding. We rely on these bonds which are sort of feast or famine, and I don't know that it's really the best way to spend money. I think you'd do much better off with floods if we had a steady kind of an assessment that came wet or dry year, these people have enough money to pay attention to their business. And the boom and bust of bonds, I think, has done a real disservice to the people of California, and we really, really need it, need something more. The same, similar problem on, on ecosystems. Uh, we've had 150 years to figure out floods and droughts since the earliest days of California. We, When we first came over uh, as as, as uh, Europeans and experienced abrupt climate change coming here from the east. Um, but on the ecosystems, we're really not organized to be successful or not funded to be successful. Bonds are, are better than nothing, but we, we really need to think of more strategically than that.
1: Okay, so I'm going to open up the questions for Can all of you. I just respond oh, okay. to
3: that really quick? And I think Jay's point is a great one. It's actually this year in the legislature, I didn't mention it, I've, I have proposed a $100 million general fund contribution towards doing the critical repairs to our levies. Now that's, I think we need to do more, but my concept there is exactly what you're saying. Let's start getting a steady funding every year that we put into our levy system because that's needed and we can't just always bond it because there's also the issue of, we got a huge amount of debt yeah. from doing all these bonds as well. You know, why isn't that part of our budget Every year, if you live in California, that should be part of your budget every year, and unfortunately, under the current status, it's not. So, that's something that definitely people who are interested in this please weigh in on that point.
1: Okay, well, then I uh, that actually steers me to another question that I was going to ask later, but I'll ask it now in terms of funding and who's going to pay because I went on I just got back from vacation uh two days ago, but part of my trip. Uh, for fun was in New Orleans, but I called up the city planning department and I got to go on a tour of uh, their post-Katrina work that they've done on their levees, which is very cool. I guess the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers went through and, and um, I th- think they spent $14.5 billion and they showed me the new flood pumps and the rebuilt levees, um, but there's still con- some con- some concerns about Who's going to pay for the upkeep? And I think uh, I was just reading a story. In the past couple of years, the residents of New Orleans, uh, at least in the areas that are right close to the levy, have voted against um, paying. And I actually talked to one woman who's 70 who said, well, you know, I'm 70. What do I care? And if you choose to live in New Orleans, you just got to live with it. Um, Now, if I remember correctly, Sacramento, I don't know where it ranks above or below New Orleans in the most flood-prone city, but that got me thinking, if we do need to do these repairs and, and think forward, who's gonna pay? I mean, it can't just be, I mean, we are paying in terms of bonds. We are ter, um, paying, I guess, the federal funds have to be paid back, but where will this funding come from or where should it come from? Who wants to take that?
5: Jay. Well, I'll take a first shot at it in the sense of comparing it with New Orleans. if. The the tally, I think, is $10, $20, $30 billion for for the Sacramento Valley, uh, Central Valley. The lesson from Katrina is if you want $14 billion worth of federal money, lose Sacramento in a flood. I don't think that's the way we want to pay for it, the way we want to earn that money, but otherwise we really have to rely on ourselves, I think, given the way the federal government's been spending money on on floods in in the last 50 years.
6: Brent? Yeah, I want to say that I, you get flood funding when something breaks. And so we in Yuba County had a levy break, A 1,000 homes went under, we lost a couple of people, and suddenly we were in line for all kinds of funding to figure out how to get it. Now we prepared and we did a lot of work. We made sure that our environmental docs were done before we, you know, so that we were ready when the state and feds bring it out. But I will say that I live in Plumas Lake and we have incredibly high CSA fees Our levy reclamation district and drainage fees are pretty high. In fact, it's an economic disincentive to build in Yuba Yuba County because our fees are fairly high. But the reality is we have a $450 million levy system. I'd say the biggest problem with levies, one of the bigger problems, is it's not so much the funding to build it. You can actually go out and find some money to build it. But there's not a person living behind a levy who thinks they should pay for the maintenance. You know, it's just sitting there. It's a pile of dirt. We don't need to do anything. It costs thousands of dollars a mile to maintain those levees, and so convincing people who are you know who, who moved there and didn't have to worry and they've never been flooded that they're important and they should be paying for them on a yearly Basis just like they pay their property taxes and whatever That's hard to get done. And so I think that's a real critical issue I mean, I think we can build them, but I think if Oroville proves anything we can build flood structures But if we don't maintain them, they're not very useful
1: Mike
4: Thank you. Um, I want to add to this and point out that as part of our planning process, the Department of Water Resources went and worked with all of the local agencies for the 1,600 miles of levees that Leslie was talking about. And we found that on average, we're spending about $30 million per year we then went through and listed off all of the legal requirements that these agencies are supposed to be doing and came up with a detailed cost estimate of what they should be spending. And that number was $130 million per year just for maintenance activity. So there's immediately a deficiency that's four times greater, well, sorry, three point something times greater than what we're actually expending on that. And what happens is, is every time you defer a payment, the costs actually get exponentially higher as you're going forward. So to answer your question, Vanessa, it's really the public that's gonna to have to pay. It could be public at the federal level, it could be public at the state level, and it's gonna be public at the local level, but there's not gonna be a private beneficiary or a corporation that's gonna come in and pay for it because the benefits that are accrued for flood management are really hard and distributed to go through and assess everybody of what they're what they're benefiting from the system. So we are looking at a mix of bonds and general fund augmentations, and local assessments, and appropriations coming from the federal government.
5: Jay, Let me just add a little bit. In the Plumas Lakes area, the probability of your house burning down is probably lower than the probability of you being flooded, yet the people of Plumas Lake don't have any trouble f- paying for, flood- for fire right. protection. So I think part of it's cultural and just the way we're used to thinking about it. Be- because you would all flood at once if you flood, mm-hmm. but if you your houses were burned down individually with a higher probability.
1: I want to open up, I have one more question, but I also wanted to say if anyone has questions that they want to hover near the mic or start lining up, I'm going to ask my next question and then open up to the audience for questions that you have. Um, Because I wanted to ask about the groundwater issue, a couple of you referred to that. And uh, as someone who doesn't know much about the water system, I thought, oh, all this water will be replenishing what we have, but then I was reading that actually, um, there's some consequences about drought versus flood, and there's been a lot of sinking, aquifer levels dropping, and I was reading here, parts of California's San Joaquin Valley have dropped by up to 28 feet, and that is crackled and uh, cracked and buckled infrastructure like the roads, bridges, the pipelines, canals, so groundwater is not necessarily uh, being replenished. So I thought that was interesting and I also saw that there is, right now I guess a lot of work or uh, action being done with our 2014 Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that was passed. So I was wondering if someone could explain in layman's terms what that Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is supposed to do and what's being done right now in terms of getting our groundwater back or, or managing it going forward. So who would like to start with that? Okay, Mike.
4: Um, I'm not always a fan of some of the names of legislation and processes. Earlier we were talking about a state plan of flood control. Really we are talking about physical facilities. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act I thought was very well named. It really is about having sustainable management of our groundwater resources. Now I'm gonna to add to that, uh, the reason it's important is we have been regulating our surface water resources. We are talking about how we're gonna address the surplus waters, our flood waters, through here. But what the missing link has been in California, and this doesn't exist in most of the western United States, or most of the western states in the United States, is actually integrating and talking about that uh, relationship between surface water and groundwater. From a flood management perspective, the uh, excess water that's being taken out during the drought uh, to actually meet that balance and difference from lack of surface water has led to some of the subsidence that you referenced which has compromised our levee system in the San Joaquin. Literally as our aquifers deplete and lose water, just visually think of it as a sponge drying out. It literally gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as that happens, the levees in the areas where we're having the subsidence in these aquifers, those levees drop down and form little lakes. Now, what most people don't understand is you just can't go back and direct inject or actually get that aquifer to rise up. (laughs) that water would have to go through and move not only the aquifer but all of the material over it again to get back up there. So from a flood management perspective, we have to talk about how can we make that system whole again. But I, as a flood planner, am very interested in seeing sustainable groundwater management practices so that we don't have somebody's groundwater extraction actually causing losses or impacts to somebody's flood protection.
1: Brad?
6: Yeah. I mean, groundwater management is, it was a tough issue. Um, most people, you know, w- when you're we're in the state of California, you've got to drill a well when you wanted to drill a well, and you got to take the water out when you wanted. And if it was below your house, below your farm, it was yours. And the reality is it doesn't work real well. And I would compare it to, so you have a groundwater aquifer, and you start pumping water, and that ground starts going down. It'd be like you building a dam, and every time there's a drought, and you pump water out, you lower the dam. So the reality is you get less water in it. And so that's a real major challenge. The further we take it out, the further we deplete it as it continues to subside. We don't have a as lake as big as we had 10 years ago. And right now we need big lakes. And that lake underground is a spectacular aquifer. I mean, I can give you an idea. Yuba County has a million acre feet in surface storage, and we've got four million acre feet in our groundwater basin. So our big lake is underneath us, and we have to manage it. Now, sometimes what that means is we have to figure out how to move surface water into places. So we were able, when we built Bullard's Bar, to move surface water from New Bullard's Bar Reservoir out to South County, and our aquifer is staying pretty steady and we've probably increased it by about 350,000 acre feet of water. And it's manageable and it's doable. But our next problem becomes we've got some of the finest and most productive agricultural land in the world in the San Joaquin Valley and we've overpumped it. And we've gotta figure out how to move water. One of the reasons we need storage and more of it and a conveyance system of some sort to get it down there is so we can start farming down there with surface water so that we don't lose that incredibly productive ground. And so it's just a management issue. We've gotta be able to move water where we need it. We've gotta be able to hold water within the ground. It is our big reservoir and we need to make sure that we don't deplete it and make it forever smaller.
2: Leslie? So I had a um, an addition to that. Coming from Southern California, one of the interesting points about San Diego that I learned when I was there is that first of all, groundwater is not evenly distributed. It's not everywhere, and you can't just pool somewhere and expect it to go into a a meaningful aquifer. It just doesn't happen like that. Um, San Diego, for instance, if it were to survive on the groundwater that's underneath San Diego, it could support a population of about 50,000. So it's just not a place that you could populate without the surface water that we have. So um, for those of you on the podcast, I'm just referring back to to Mike's um, really wonderful National Geographic map up there. Not every bit of the Central Valley could be utilized effectively as groundwater recharge. So that's another challenge. Southern California is almost all adjudicated. Um, I was actually really surprised that Northern California was so far behind, but uh, it's such a precious commodity there that we had those battles already years and years before. So um, I'm glad to see that it's happening statewide. It's probably about time, but the the really good storage is all south, so it, it's not necessarily useful to put it anywhere, and that's something that we're also learning with technology and, and um, the work that the department's doing.
1: Okay, Mike again, but I wanna say also, whoever lines up at the, I know there's gotta be someone with a burning question, Okay, so you're next. (laughs) I just want to prime the pump for, I I love all these water terms, for the next question. So, Mike, you keep going.
4: Right. So, I did want to put on my planning hat out here and say that I actually do see a happy outcome from SIGMA, But I wanted to go back to something Brent had said earlier. And And
1: I just want to, what is SIGMA? Is that an acronym?
4: Yes, sorry. Okay. It's the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. You should have had a a jar here for me to put some money in. That's a, a foul on my part to use the acronym. Um, With the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, the happy future out here is we're now requiring local agencies to come together to do planning to identify the projects and activities that they can do to actually manage comprehensively their water balance. And as they're going through and doing that, what Brent had uh, articulated earlier is the concern that often we're very reactive as a society and we go quick to regulation. Uh, what's worked in our flood planning efforts for the Center Valley Flood Protection Plan is combining top-down and bottom-up approaches. There's an opportunity with SIGMA for us to go through and recognize that when people come together the first time, they're not going to be using the same language, they're not going to be familiar with these other local agencies' issues or challenges, be it a physical stra- stressor or, or maybe a board member or just the way um, their plumbing is set up. but we have the opportunity through the sustainable groundwater management plans to iteratively learn how to think better about how we do our water balancing. And so the silver lining is here, we recognize that it's gonna be an iterative process. That's part of learning how to water overall our water.
1: And what's the, what's the time frame for the act? It sounds like there's public or commentary coming in and then the, your department's gonna weigh in. I mean, what's the, what should be, we as citizens be looking for in terms of what's going to be coming out of this the sigma is there a timeline
4: there there is a timeline unfortunately i don't know the exact dates on that but the intent was for these agencies that were identified as a higher medium risk to first go through and identify an intent to form what we call a sustainable groundwater management agency so this is the group that is going to work together Right, it might have actually been a sustainable groundwater management group, but I think it's an agency. But it's the group of agencies that are going to work together, and then they have a couple of years to go through and come up with their plan.
1: And then, Brent, and then we'll go to the first question.
6: Well, they have to make their groundwater sustainability agency a GSA is what they're forming, and then uh, they have till uh, about the middle of this summer to actually get them formed but then it's a longer process because they have to implement by 2025. They get all, the, all their plans done and then they have to actually have the plans working in full implementation by 2040. And so it's not a overnight, mostly because you can't do anything in water overnight, but it's also giving them time to put together a plan that's actually workable and, and make sure it works. And there are huge penalties if you don't make it work. So it's it's actually something I've seen. It's super important to us in the state and I will tell you that there's nobody not getting involved if, if they have the ability or are working within GSAs. You know, they might be wanting to kill each other, but they are getting together and working through the process because there is too many uh, unknowns if they don't get it done and get it done right.
5: The, the, the huge penalty that he's mentioning, I think, is, is worth defining. The huge penalty is the state will come in and regulate your basin. So if there's anything that, that people hate more than anything else, it's other people controlling something that they value dearly. So true.
1: All right, first question. All right.
5: uh, Hello. Is
3: it everybody hear me here? Maybe.
1: Also kind of tall.
3: All right, how's that? Okay. Uh,
1: My name is Ansel Lundberg. Just wanted
3: to say thanks, everybody, for coming out. Really enjoyed the panel so far. Um, So we've talked a lot about levees and dams. Um, I think sort of an underdog of this year has been... One of our best flood control apparatuses, the Yolo Bypass, right, right across the river here. Um, it's sort of a multi-use area that can function as a floodplain, but also farmland during the summertime. Um, I'm just this is a question for the panel generally. What work might be going into improving that uh, the Yolo
0: Bypass specifically, but also floodplain management in general?
1: And just for the podcast or for whoever, basically when you're driving from Sacramento to Davis um, on that road before you hit Davis, that's what we're, the yellow bypass, correct? That right now, that that sea of water right now. So, okay. Mike will take that first.
4: I really appreciate that question. That would probably be my second favorite water body. But it is ephemeral, yeah. It only exists part of the time. What's been amazing this past year is we had the bypass flooded in January we opened actually the Sacramento weir which is the only of our operable gates in January we closed it and then we opened it again in February that is the first time since 1985 that we've had two physical operations of the Sacramento weir it's a good canary in the mine cage or indicator for when we have a really large amount of water coming through our system getting into the benefits that we've had out in the bypass since we've basically had inundation now measured not in the seven days that normally we would like from an ecological perspective, but from months, plural, um, we're having primary productivity. So as you have water flooded over a floodplain, that helps the fish species, because they actually depend on the food that's growing in that water out there. Uh, the other things that we've been having out here, and this is ancillary, we haven't measured this yet, but we're gonna see that there is some incidental recharge to of our aquifers out here, it acts as a spreading basin. And then, of course, the obvious thing, going back to the flood question, is uh, all that water coming through the Yolo Bypass has relieved the pressure on the urban levees around West Sacramento and Sacramento, where we're standing and, and talking right now. So it, it really is the example of a multi-benefit project. There are projects underway right now to go through and increase the capacity in the Yolo Bypass. Uh, the state has been in negotiation with local landowners to go through and purchase portions of their land uh, Just north of the city of West Sacramento in an area we call the lower Elkhorn Basin and build a setback levy That's the first of many steps uh, Part of uh, our next phase will be to go through and work with the landowners in the upper Elkhorn Basin the area adjacent across the river from the Sacramento International Airport and do the same thing set back the levee there to allow more Flow capacity to come through and at the same time talk about expanding the Fremont Weir. So that we can get from a biological perspective more frequent inundations of the bypass on what would be the east side which is the lower side of the bypass to help the fish species growing out there and then the last phases of what we're talking about doing is actually expanding the capacity in the bypass south uh, of west sacramento and again we're working with the local agencies one of the options that i am a proponent of and we haven't really this completely out there is really thinking about how often is the Sacramento Deepwater Ship Channel being used, and is there an opportunity to actually get flood water into that channel or to change uh, what that's like? Now that the process for doing that again isn't just talking to uh, the Port of West Sacramento and the City of West Sacramento, but also talking to everybody who's using that port facility as well as the alternatives out there. So I I don't want you to think that this is something that's going to happen in five or 10 years, whereas those other projects will. But the idea is is to safely convey the flows through the entire Yolo bypass. And then as we are doing these setbacks, we are also putting ecosystem zones in there where we're restoring some of the habitat, creating safe place, not only for the fish species out there, but the avian species and some of the terrestrial species.
1: James?
3: Um, that was a really good overview, but just real quick, actually an interesting bit of history is that the bypasses are an example of how sometimes laymen know more than the experts. Um, because the bypasses were actually first uh, thought of by a guy named Will Green, who was not an engineer, but who had enough practical experience living along the Feather River in Calusa, actually, uh, that said there's no way that the river system and the levees can, can hold the capacity when we have these monstrous floodwaters that come down the system. And he said you have to have a bypass, which is basically, it, it's, you cut a weir in the side of the river and you allow that floodwater to flow out into a larger area. So we have the Sutter bypass and the Yolo, Yolo bypass. Army Corps of Engineers at the time said, you can't, no, we just need to channelize the river, we need to have levees, it'll handle it. They were wrong, Will Green ended up being right. And that's why we built the bypasses in the first place yolo is actually it makes there's so many reasons why we need to better utilize that right um first of all it it it, probably the biggest choke point um in all of the river system and the flood system is the fremont weir Um, fremont weir is really not low enough some might say it's not wide enough um and so water backs up there at fremont and you get severe pressure up against the natomas levees the, the cross canal uh, if you know the Crosscut, that's the levee on the north side of the Natomas Basin backs up, um, and it and it causes a lot of pressure along levees. If we were able to lower the Fremont Weir and put more water into the Yolo Bypass, it would be a big flood improvement for both Sacramento and upstream. Not to mention is the is the salmon. It we know that we've lost a lot of salmon habitat, and their spawning grounds are not as good, you know, as 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 they were maybe historically. One of the things you can do is in the Yolo bypass, actually in rice fields of all places, and caltrout trout is actually doing some very interesting research on this, is that you can put the juvenile salmon, they, that, that can be their area where they get their foods, they grow, they grow bigger, um, they're more resistant to predators after they get out of that area. And so we can use the Yolo bypass again for that purpose as uh, you know, Mike was pointing out. So there's a lot of benefits to actually more fully utilizing the Yolo bypass.
1: Are those the only two bypasses, at least uh, in this Central Valley, that we have? Is the Yellow and Sutter, and is it something that could be considered as a method for other parts of the Valley, or Jay?
5: Yeah, you have. Uh, in order to establish a bypass, you need a lot of land. It's it will be sort of difficult to get a lot of land in other parts of the Valley to establish a new bypass. But the ideas of expanding the existing bypasses, I think, are have some merit. Um, the other thing you'll see, and, and as has been mentioned, we're asking these bypasses to do more and more over time. They started off as agriculture. We had them do flood and agriculture. Now we have them do flood, agriculture, uh, Pacific Flyway, and now we're trying to get salmon on them. So uh, we're making them work pretty hard, um, and we're going to work, in, I, but I think it's the most, uh, most promising area to, to make some expansions, particularly on the environment side and the flood control side. Next question.
2: Hello. Um, my name is Katie Webster. Um, so we've been talking a lot about repairing levees and dams. Um, and I kind of wanted to do a 180 and talk about or ask about um, the removal of dams. Um, I just recently saw the documentary Damnation and it talked about how there's tens of thousands of dams in the United States that aren't useful anymore and how removing them can restore salmon um, habitat, like you just mentioned. Um, So I just wanted to ask what is um, the priority of removing dams here in California and um, sort of what the status is of any of those projects that are happening. Mike?
4: Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen that documentary, but a good project that I really enjoyed and liked was the uh, Sam Clemente Dam removal. So this was a dam in coastal California where basically it had silted up, it was no longer providing all of the benefits and uh, services that it was intended to go through and do and did go through the process of actually the removal of the facility and a restoration of that river reach. Um, What is important when you're going through and doing the dam removals is to assess what uh, the benefits are of removing that facility and so you have to do it on a case by case um, situation. As part of our Central Valley flood planning process, this topic did come up, but on a much smaller scale There are a number of small low head dams that are located on a number of the San Joaquin uh, tributaries, Uh, so the Merced River running through um, Sorry, I'm getting my rivers wrong. I think it might have actually been the Tuolumne River that's running through Modesto has some uh, low head dams that run through some park area that actually cause nuisance flooding and also are an impediment to fish passage as they're moving through. The department does have a fish passage improvement program to go through and identify these facilities to then really develop a plan of what it would take to go through and remove those small dams to actually address the fish passage issues out there. And uh, during the event, in February, when we had the opportunity to go and look at some of these local plans, that the, the state sponsored through the flood planning effort, we saw the local agencies were championing these actions. And so the department has also been advocating for funding to go through and, and start at the bottom and, and progressively work your way up. And I would be remiss to not um, mention that there are other activities out there where we've talked about modifying facilities coming up with more friendly fish passage structures, fish ladders, things of that nature to get the fish into the rearing habitat they need. So it's it's not an easy solution. And I I sound like I'm a salesman for planning, but that's really what it's going to take a lot of to go through and do over time.
5: Okay. There are a couple of other places where there, uh, well we've actually, actually removed some dams in the Central Valley, certainly on Butte Creek, and I think it was Clear Creek, is it? Uh, and, and restored some fish passage there, salmon passage there uh, on Butte Creek quite successfully. Um, there's another effort on Battle Creek to remove some of the very old, ancient dams that pg and installed there back in about 1905. Uh, and the important thing about, Butte, about uh, Battle Creek is it's it's a very cold water that comes out of uh, lava, old lava aquifers is there. Um, that's cold enough all year round for winter run, and so that's seen as a possible alternative spawning site to to where they currently spawn and where we've had such trouble during this last drought.
1: I had a question about that because I was reading. I, I guess the U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers had their website and listed how. Um, Many, I guess dams have a 50-year lifespan, officially, no. Although most of the ones in California are over 50, at least the ones that are under the U.S. Army Corps. And I was, D-
5: dams are forever dams until are they forever. fall down, okay. essentially. they're. It's like a hillside in the middle of a river. It, it doesn't move unless something moves it. So
1: can you do major repairs? I mean, Oroville obviously is an ex, not an exception, but can you do major repairs, or just is it more useful to take down a dam if it gets to a point where you, ta- you just have to wait and see? I was just curious about dam repair or versus dam removal, Brent.
6: Sure, Um, I think it really matters, the dam. Butte Creek was a really wonderful example. I think they're celebrating 25 years coming up. Just a fantastic uh, restoration of environment. Um, But it depends on where the dam is. It depends on how big it is. Um, Big dams are harder to remove. I can give you an example. Um, Englebright Dam is on the Yuba River. It's actually below our dam. Uh, they fought for years to figure out how to do it. But you got to remember that, you know, there was a time when we weren't environmentalists. And so on the Yuba River system, actually, you know, I'm proud of Yuba County. We had the first, first environmental lawsuit in the state of California came from Yuba County. You know, now everybody in Yuba County hates environmental law lawyers but at this point it was the first time and what happened was we in uh, you know the the people up in the foothills in the grass valley area decided to wash their mountains down to yuba county in hydraulic gold mining well that hydraulic gold mining moved millions of yards of dirt and actually much like they did here in um, sacramento where you're you're below where the street used to be the city of marysville they actually they washed so much gravel down the river that it would actually raise the bottom of the river higher than the city And that's when they started building levees in Yuba County. I think that, but you know, there are problems associated with that. So at an Englebright Reservoir, you have a problem with, you know, what did they use when they were hydraulic mining? Well, they used lots of water, pushed lots of gravel, and then loaded everything with mercury so they could get the gold out. So I've got a million cubic yards sitting below in the bottom of Englebright Dam that if I move it, it's a highly toxic, mercury-laden, and will absolutely destroy the environment for, many, many decades if we move it. So we really can't. So there's, there's examples like that that make it more difficult on some of them. The rim dams, I mean, it just depends on where the dam is. If it's high enough, I can tell you that Englebright I'm sorry, not Englebright. And, and, and just to go real quickly on Englebright, it was actually not built for any of, it wasn't built for flood purpose, it wasn't built for anything else. In the, in the 30s, when we decided we were gonna look for jobs, somebody at the federal government said, that is a great idea, you should be, build Englebright to stop all that debris so we can put the miners back to work washing down the mountains. Thankfully, they built the dam, but they didn't wash, they didn't start back up, so it'll probably be there a while. Uh, New Bullard's Bar has an incredibly clean runoff, and we'll, I'm you know we'll probably be there two thousand years from now, less than 25% silted up. It's just a, it's an amazing facility. So you have to look at where it is, what it is, and and what it does besides flood control. Remember that the dams, many of the dams are there not only for flood control but power generation. They're there for um, water, and probably the you know the biggest problem becomes you know I think the biggest thing that we'll get removal of smaller dams in the next. 50 years is going to be that solar panel, solar panels, wind panels, whatever we're going to do in alternate energy is going to be so successful and so cheap that it doesn't make any sense to run the power lines down the mountain to get there. So I think your long-term solution, if you want to get rid of a lot of small dams that are strictly there for hydro, is make sure we make alternative energy so cheap it makes no sense to do anything else.
7: Next question. Um, my name is Andrew McLeod. I operate Confluence Tours focusing on Sacramento's lost history and topography. And I'm really glad that the book uh, Battling the Inland Sea has come up. Um, it's really uh, changed how I look at the valley. And, um, you know, we, we, it's, it's crazy enough to think that right now we're standing on what was once ground level. But it actually gets worse that this was the high ground. I mean, five blocks west of here where the arena was built, that was Tule's. That was underwater kind of all the time. And and you know there's this this structure that's somewhat like what you find in new orleans um where the high ground is near the river and what i'm wondering is like how have there been any conversations about reckoning with that i mean i know that this gets to the core of like land and politics and power and and it's extremely difficult not to untangle but i'm I'm just wondering like as we deal with climate change and, and increasing pressures um, in places like Sacramento, which are fairly close to sea level already, how um, are people starting to think anywhere in, in water world about um, how do we begin to you know pull people out of these flood basins?
1: Or do we just have to accept that we live in a flood basin and accept the risks? Or, 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 yeah, or, right, sure. Or that. And, and pay the price.
7: Uh-huh. Uh, okay. and, 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 well, and then if that's the case, then when we lose one of these flood basins, then what?
1: Mike?
4: Uh, we've talked a lot this evening about the value, really the productivity of California agriculture, uh, measured really to the global market out there. There's another value to Californians about California agriculture, and that actually agriculture per- comprises uh, the majority of the footprint of this state plan of flood control—the 1,600 miles of levees. And by keeping productive farms out there, they have a revenue base to actually pay for that existing $30 million per year. I'd like them to be able to pay for a portion of that $130 million, and so we need to keep farms on the land not only so that we have productive farming out there, but it also helps us prevent people from going in an area that's a higher risk. And so there is a public benefit towards keeping those activities out there. Uh,
1: James.
3: You know, I I think it's very unlikely that you will see communities be moved out. You know, now there has been times when that's been done. Those tend to be very small communities that have been moved. but, you know, there was discussion about that after New Orleans, right? And New Orleans has such a strong sense of place that, that was ne- no one ever seriously said, yeah, we're gonna move New Orleans after it was destroyed. What did they do? You know, they spent billions, right, to basically put it back together. Um, but so, I mean, I don't think that there's ever gonna be the political will to move, like you can't move Sacramento, right? You're not gonna move Yuba City and say, hey, everybody move out of here. Um, what we need to do is, is, is one, Ensure that our flood control infrastructure is better. We need to make sure that people are educated, understand the risks associated. Um, you know, we have insurance programs. You know, that help with that. Probably the biggest one being the national, you know, flood insurance program NFIP, uh, that's administered by FEMA. Um, but I mean, we do have to think going forward. Hey, what what makes sense in terms of you know how we uh, you know uh, both make our investments. And I think you know Mike's point is a good one, is that one of the best things you can do is ensure that we continue productive agriculture in these areas because as as agriculture gets pushed out, what wants to come in? Development, right? So if you don't ensure that you have a vibrant, and one of the problems, for instance, with the National Flood Insurance Program is that most areas are mapped into what's called a 100-year floodplain. Well, a lot of urban areas build up their levies because they have a tax base to do so to get out of the 100-year floodplain, so they're not in the pro- program. Most, most areas that are in the f- floodplain are agricultural areas. They end up paying very high insurance costs. I mean, you could argue, in California at least, um, they're putting in a whole lot of the money that goes into the NFIP program, um, and it's, be- it's becoming even more and more burdensome, right, that, that cost of paying into the paying that insurance and that's you know when you add to that cost of you know further regulations well intentioned but costly um, it it leads to make it harder and harder to farm and you and you want to flood you want to farm in the floodplain, right that's where the most fertile soils are right so that's why we have such a productive agricultural areas because we farm in floodplains. um so that's important going forward is, hey, how do we ensure that that's viable? Because that will stave off maybe uh, less smart growth plans in some of these areas you know, that you're talking about.
1: So I want to be mindful of time. Uh, I think we have time for two more questions, since we have two people lined up. So let's take the first of two.
8: Uh, thank you. My name is Rick Bettis. I'm a retired engineer. And I worked on some of the projects you're talking about. And also, I really appreciate this panel. It's an excellent, excellent presentation. Uh, I might give as an aside, there are some bypasses off the San Joaquin River. They were uh, reclamation board projects that we worked on back in the 60s. And, but my question is, sort of getting into the weeds, uh, there's been a major difference of opinion, controversy in Sacramento and elsewhere, uh, vegetation versus flood safety. Uh, the Corps came out with some... Uh, not regulations, but guidelines on, on how to manage vegetation requiring a, uh, substantial additional removal of vegetation for flood fight purposes and for uh, erosion purposes uh, where these environmentalists are pushing back because of habitat and aesthetic reasons. So I'd like to hear all your comments on that, that controversy, which is ongoing. The Corps, DWR, and SAFCA, and other agencies are all involved in this, so thank you.
2: Leslie, you want to start? I think that's a really excellent question, and I would invite you to come to our board workshop that we're having on that topic because it has not gone gone away. In 2014, the Army Corps of Engineers um, put a stay on their vegetation policy um, with regard to the PL 8499 program, which is the program that they measure the levees by saying that they are no longer going to remove systems based solely on vegetation. But you're, you're absolutely right. That rule is still kind of hanging out there, and it's a scorched earth rule. And that doesn't work for California. It doesn't work for our conservation. It doesn't work for what our management needs are for the levy. So we do have a California position on that. Um, that was sort of a compromise position that the board put out after the 2012 plan was adopted and we are looking at it again as part of the 2017 update so um please stay tuned watch our website and for the date and time and we'd love to have you come out and talk to
5: us more
1: and i'll put that on the website too um i'll start with jay
5: Th- this is really a great issue um If you go to any part of the world that has serious flood control problems and serious levees, they do not allow vegetation on levees, particularly the backside. California has, because of its legacy of having agricultural levees and then letting people settle in close to the levee behind them, has undersized its levees, has undersized the footprint of the levees. And so we find ourselves, in many cases, with people right up against the levee on the land side, not a lot of water on the water side. And now we want to have ecosystems on them as well. So it's a real difficult public safety versus environmental habitat versus nice recreation on the levee kind of an issue. And I think the root of it is that our society, which has never been richer, is unwilling to increase the size of the footprint for levees. Clearly, I think we should double the width of those levees, and then you could have both. (laughs) And we wouldn't be fighting about it now. That's expensive. It's expensive, but it's a lot cheap, you know. But we are the richest society around, and for the urban areas, it's probably a worthwhile expense because forty-nine years out of fifty, you'd like to have the vegetation for recreation and a lot of other purposes. It's not just flood control. We expect a lot of purposes out of this levee space, and we don't haven't allocated enough, nearly enough, in terms of land use planning. I can blame the land use planners, can't I? It's oh, okay, Brent.
6: Well, I just want to say that here's the challenge. If it, What we've done with levees, and one of the challenges we have, especially in this climate change world, is we don't know how long the water is going to be sitting against that levee. Used to be 100 years ago, a levee, the water came up, somebody's levee broke. I mean, I, I say this kind of, you know, James represented Sutter County, I represent Yuba County. We're on different sides of the river, and I would always say, I don't really care how good my levees are as long as they're 15 minutes better than James's. But I want to say one of the problems we have, so if I have a dam up in the foothills or somewhere, you don't see it. I don't have people living there. They're not looking at it, so I, it is absolutely going to be, there's not going to be a tree. There's not going to be a bush. If there was a tree growing in the middle of Oroville, people would have screamed forever. But we don't look. You know, if we live next to the levee, it's just that nice hill behind us that we get to walk on. It's really pretty. We don't want you to screw up our look. But, that's, but it's a tool, you know, and we and we got to use tools. And, you know, levee's like anything else. If you let that tool rot, you know, your shovel handle's gonna break if you leave it out in the sun and let it go weathered. And in a sense, these levees are tools, and we have have misplaced our view of them. Now, we want to use them for credible multiple purposes, and so we have to build them differently. I can't disagree with Jay at all, but they're a tool. And if we're gonna let that tool sit out in the sun and rot and grow things on it, then we cannot expect it to perform as well as if we kept it like it was supposed to be, if it's a tool. James,
3: no, just one uh, real quick follow. But one of the things that we have seen with the vegetation issue is that in some, uh, the research that was done on it. Because when I was on the SafeCA board, they talked about this a lot. Is that you know some vegetation actually is is supportive and helpful to levee. Like I think what well, was like, like like large oaks, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. tend to keep that levee together and strong. So it's not like you know the scorched earth policy. I think is what is often take, take an issue with. Um, but to Jay's point, which I think is a good one, and I've been talking a lot with uh, Robert B., who's a professor out at UC Berkeley, who studied Katrina and actually went back and looked at, hey, this is why those Army Corps levies failed. He's also been looking very closely at Oroville Dam and has come out, he's been in the Sacramento Bee, is you know, his analysis of what's gone up there. And you know, he said something to me that I think is very, it's good for us all to think about tonight as we're thinking about these issues, he said, the problem in America is that we are so rich, we are so prosperous that we think we can afford to, to let it fail. And I think that's sort of, if you look at how things have gone, that's sort of what we've done, you know? We think we can afford to let it fail. So it breaks in New Orleans and floods, you know, and we have all this disaster. We bail it out and we spend billions of dollars there in, you know, we're spending exponentially more money than it would cost to just do the, the infrastructure upgrades and repairs, right? And you know if we, and when you look at Orville, I think you can maybe make that same uh, point as well. When you look at some of our levees around here, you could make the same point. Do, should we spend that money? Mu- yeah, it's costly, but it's a fraction of what you're gonna pay if there's a, a monumental break in disaster that comes in the aftermath. And until we change that mindset, here in California and throughout the nation, I think we might see more problems.
1: Well, I, wanna, I just wanna wrap it up with the last question which is gonna be the best the best wrap up question we have. Right?
4: Yeah, well it's related I guess. Two, two part, quick question. Uh, a few of you talked about modeling and modeling um, state water systems. To what degree is the state at this point integrating climate change into the modeling that you're doing right now. And then second, relatedly, we talked a lot about maintenance of infrastructure over time. And it seems, like you said, um, the taxpayers are going to have to pay for that. So what degree is modeling informing how we're going to inform taxpayers that we need to uh, maintain the infrastructure, and if we don't, use that modeling software to show them basically what happens if, if we don't maintain it? Mike. I think that's an excellent question Uh, I want to yeah first with respect to the climate change modeling that's happening out there it wasn't really until about seven years ago that we completed a a usable and I'm saying a usable system model for um, actually modeling floodwaters moving from the Sierra Nevada and for those of you in the room here you can look at that picture Sierra Nevada is a giant wall Literally, as atmospheric rivers and storm events come through, they're really great at generating rainfall and precipitation. And that's part of the reason why the Central Valley is so dang flat. As that water has come through, it just settles out in the valley, and that's what we're looking at, the bottom of the ocean floor, um, where that water collected. Uh, But in going through and doing our our modeling system, we now have the ability to take the climate models and uh, pick uh, scenarios Uh, Based off of the best practices. Uh, I'm not going to give the acronym here because I think I already have a dollar on the table for earlier tonight But in those coupled models that we've been looking at we then run through watershed models To actually see how the physical response of the watershed brings in these climate change projected atmospheric models runoff into our reservoirs we now have modernized reservoir operating rules incorporated into our system models And then we have a full model describing how the flow goes not only through the channels, but when and where it might break in those channels through the levees, and then get into the floodplains, and can get into very detailed floodplain inundation mapping. And our floodplain inundation mapping will tell us how high the water can be at various locations in our floodplains, and it can tell us the arrival time out there. And uh, the program that we had, we call it the Central Valley Floodplain Evaluation Delineation. so the climate change is incorporated into that. It was the basis for the rationale beside uh, For the investment numbers that we had in our centrifuge flood protection plan And I know I want to jump to the next question you had out there Which is how can we go through and use these tools to actually show how these levees stress over time? And I'm gonna first do the tools. and I'm gonna give you a sort of a, a, a mental model on um, the tools what we don't have is the ability to actually change the geometry of our channels dynamically out there. There's a, yet another evolution of these system models that are really needed to cover an area the size of the state of Florida. We're talking the Central Valley. It's, when you look at a map, it's Florida. <laughs> so it's a pretty complex modeling problem to go out there and have something where you're changing all of what we call the bathymetry. It's the, the surface of the land and the water. And as we get all that out there, we need to go through and do that sediment transport modeling. Uh, The last part is, as we go through and get to that next evolution of models out there, is in our engineering designs, where we're talking about our levees, our weirs, our reservoirs, our spillways, any of these structures that we're relying on, is we need to articulate not only how long we think that structure should be out there before we have to replace it or retire it, we should also be talking about how many numbers of uses. The automotive industry knows how many times you can open and close your car door before that hinge should fall off. They don't tell us, but they know. And they use that in the factor of their design. We're not going through in our physical infrastructure and actually putting design life metrics out there. And we actually are required as a state agency to do that uh, by one of Brown's executive orders. And so the real quick components, you have your first costs, what you do to build something. You have your operations and maintenance costs. What we don't often do Is actually put aside rainy day funds for when you have a non-routine or unique emergency occur and that's why we're always scrambling at the last minute to get these funds we're getting better but we're not there and then the last thing is is we never put into our uh, infrastructure our plans sunset clauses of this is when we need to do something different
1: and then on part two I just want a couple of, of last comments on that part two translating that information to you know, getting the effect of it to the public and in terms of them realizing and doing something. So how, how is that translating? How can it be translated? Brent.
6: Yeah, I, I just want to say from a modeling standpoint, one of the things that can make the quickest, I think change that's going to allow us because we have so much better. So I went through the 97 flood and I went through this one in 2017. Our ability to flow, to know how much water is coming, our ability to check water, our ability to model our dam is tremendously better than it was. And yet our core of engineer flood model that we use and the requirements that we have to stay within the flood are based on when we built the dam 52 years ago. And that has not changed in 52 years. So the modeling is going to help us look at how floods are coming in with extended, um, looking at weather and looking at an extended time. We can actually say, okay, we could actually hold more water in the dam because we know we can actually see what's, how much water is going to be raining at a much later date. And so I think that kind of modeling is really helpful. And I think that uh, using that to explain to people that we can actually make better flood outcomes within the state of California, just by modeling and changing the way we do things. None of us are, you know, I don't know anybody who's driving a car that's 52 years old. But the reality is they've gotten better. And they, they, they understand modeling and, and figuring out how you can do it. So we have a lot better tools now. We should use those tools to use the old tools better.
5: Last word with Jay. Um, I, I really like modeling. I'm an engineer, so it's, it's natural, I'm afraid. Um, but there's two aspects of any successful water system, of, of engineering in a successful water system. One is numbers. The other is people. We've gotten a lot better at the numbers than we had in the past. We st- we will always have people problems. And that's that goes to the legislature and the number of lawyers that are involved. Trying to get the the, the people side and the numbers side to work together is the hardest thing about this business. Because you the insights that you want to get out of the numbers, and, and some of the numbers people just want to hide and do numbers, but the real what you really want out of the out of the numbers is insights. And to communicate those insights solidly. To the people that have to make decisions and organize the people to get solutions, to get money, uh, that's always the hard part. And um, that's a people problem. And I think that's kind of a human condition problem a little bit as well. So I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not pessimistic, but I try to be realistic about that fact.
1: Well, I think uh, we just scratched the surface. There's a lot we learned. But I'm glad to hear the levees are up, the dam's being fixed, and we can rest a little bit. So thank you very much, panelists, for your insight. Thank you, audience, for coming. We'll put the podcast up. And have a good night.
0: You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's conversation about fixing our water infrastructure was held on May 24th, 2017 at Graciano's Speakeasy on Front Street in Old Sacramento. Thanks to Ken and Maria Harris, the owners of Graciano's, for hosting this lively discussion. And thanks also to our group of groundbreaking panelists. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.